Hello, everyone. My name is Alex Chersovsky. I'm a senior business advisor at ITR Economics. And today I wanted to do, as I promised, during my bigger pocket keynotes last week, and that is to answer some of the outstanding questions that we didn't get to during the presentation itself. And uh, boy, when I made that promise, I had no idea what I was signing up for because there were dozens upon dozens of questions. So I'm going to do my best to cover the specific topics that were asked about the most. And um, I can tell you right off the bat that uh, the majority of the questions were economic in nature, but there were several of you that were asking me questions about specific regional markets, whether it's single family or multifamily. And unfortunately, I don't have the capacity to answer those types of questions during this particular session. Uh, I'll recommend a couple of things. First of all, um, you can reach out to us for specific data. There are obviously some costs involved, but you can get data specific to Dallas or to Texas or to any other major metropolitan area uh, or any major state um, or region in the country. And that can be for single family, for multifamily. We can look at starts. We can look at permits. We can look at um, you know inventory levels. We can look at things like um, vacancy rates and other pertinent data points that will help you make the best decision about you know, the different markets of opportunity from a regional perspective. But I also wanted to recommend that you post on the bigger pocket forums. I think the community that uh, is provided to you as part of your membership is fantastic resource. Um, and there's gonna be a lot of great discussions on the regional opportunities pertaining to those questions. So I apologize in advance that I'm not gonna be able to get to those specific regional questions for you today, but I will do my best to answer anything related to the economy. So as far as that pertains, what I noticed when we were um, looking through all the questions that came in is there were really a few key areas. Uh, a lot of you had questions about interest rates and policy moving forward. Uh, we, you asked questions about the labor market conditions and what do we typically track there? Um, some inflation related questions as well as you know what happens to the dollar as a result of inflationary pressures, and then some specific questions about housing market statistics um, that I think are more macro in nature. So I'm going to do my best to answer all of those questions for you um, over the next several minutes. So thank you so much for taking the time to view this. I appreciate you uh, being so engaged during my presentation and for sending these questions in. Let's talk about how, uh, the interest rate environment first. I had several questions of a similar nature in this. Nick Morris asked, how high do we see interest rates rising to this year? Kenneth Hines asked, what events or indicators will lead to interest rate rising in the next couple of years? Um, Rex Romano asked, when do we expect interest rates to begin to rise? Uh, there were some other uh, really interesting questions like, will the U.S. have negative interest rates? And um, I think that was asked by Matthew Malin and Anna Graham. Uh, asked, looking at interest rates, it looks like long-term rates are increasing. Do you see that adding pressure on the Fed to increase short-term rates more quickly? So in general, I think when we're talking about interest rate policy, the way that economists talk about that is, I think, slightly different than the way that real estate investors talk about it. Typically, when we talk about interest rates, we're talking about the federal funds rate as set by the Federal Open Market Committee. So these are uh, regional individuals that work for the Fed. They come together. They make decisions about a comprehensive interest rate policy in the U.S. And uh, they produce what is famously referred to as the dot plot chart. And basically, that is showing their consensus opinion on what is likely to happen with that core federal funds rate that then leads to changes in all of the other important interest rates from credit cards to auto loans and yes, of course, to mortgages and then uh, long and short-term bond yields as well. 
So what we've seen, uh, at least recently, as of their March meeting, is that they have recommitted themselves that there will not be any changes in the federal funds rate. It's going to remain at or near zero. It's trading in a range of about zero to 0.25% right now um, for the foreseeable future. At least through 2021, the vast majority uh, of the responders in that survey talked about interest rates staying low through 2022 as well. And it wasn't until 2023 that we started to see some meaningful data points show up that uh, likely point to some increase on that baseline federal funds rate. Now, keep in mind, uh, short-term rates, especially things like mortgage rates, whether it's 15-year or 30-year mortgage rates, they do fluctuate in a relatively uh, narrow band, but they do move up and down over time. We've seen this over the last several months, certainly the 30-year mortgage rate uh, that was trading below 3% for a while there earlier this year has come up now a little bit, but we're not expecting it to get significantly higher. And if the Fed is to be believed, which we do, uh, we don't expect that to really start to occur until 2023 potentially late 2022. Um, now, the kind of things that are going to be the drivers of the, the interest rate changes are twofold. Number one, they're going to be looking at labor market conditions. Number two, they're going to be looking at inflation. And we're going to be talking about those things in a separate section of this Q&A. So with that in mind, actually, let's transition and talk about labor market conditions. But I will answer one last question on interest rates before I forget. No, we do not expect interest rates to go negative in the US at any point in time. That is very unlikely to happen from an economic perspective. It would be a huge problem actually for many aspects of the economy, uh, not to mention the savers that rely on the safe haven investments to uh, kind of get themselves through retirement. So I, I don't think that that's going to be a possibility. Now, as far as the labor market is concerned, there were two really great questions that came in that I wanted to address. Number one, Katie Miller asked, do you ever take into consideration the number of new job increases per state as a way to determine the best market to invest in? And the answer to that question is absolutely. When I have worked with clients in the real estate space, whether it's single or multifamily investors, whether it's REITs or, or other people that want to know about what kind of dynamics tend to have the biggest impact on housing market conditions, I think that looking at employment figures, not only uh, the amount of new jobs added, but the unfilled, the vacancies that, you know, open positions that companies are struggling to hire for. Uh, you look at um, things that, you know, what kind of job market fulfillment is there? Are we looking at uh, retail primarily? Are we looking at kind of the lower end sector, hospitality, leisure? Is it the restaurant space, you know, food and beverage? Or is it the better paying jobs? Is it manufacturing? Is it construction related activity? Is it in the services sector? Those kind of white collar type of jobs. So absolutely, we do look at that. And the good news, here is that the people that tend to be more frequently house buyers were relatively uh, unscathed during this particular downturn. Now, that is not to take anything away from those that suffered the worst. They were exactly the people that I mentioned, retail environment workers, uh, restaurant employees, you know, um, people involved in the travel industry, leisure and hospitality employees. So those still to this day maintain the biggest additional increase in unemployment that we've seen, you know, as a result of the pandemic that happened last year. Right now, um, there's still uh, at least three to four million people in the ranks of the unemployment that were not there prior to the pandemic. Now, keep in mind, uh, I, I think sometimes those unemployment numbers can be a little bit deceiving. They talk about there are over 10 million people unemployed. 
Well, don't forget that there were 6 million people in the ranks of the unemployed before the pandemic ever got here. So uh, you have to make sure you kind of, kind of cut through that noise a little bit and get at the valid data points that really drive decision maker. But uh, I do think that looking at labor market conditions in the local area is absolutely critical to determining, uh, you know, which markets present better investment opportunities for real estate and which ones do not. Now, there was another question from an anonymous attendee. Uh, they talked about seeing the unemployment rate drop, but what about labor force participation rate and the millions still on unemployment? So I will say that um, I talked about the millions that are on the unemployment ranks right now. I think that over the next, call it six to nine months, those segments of the economy that have been hurt the most, again, leisure, hospitality, retail, restaurants, are going to reopen and reopen in a meaningful way if the vaccination data holds up and continues to accelerate as it has. We vaccinated over two and a half million people per day on average over the course of the last week. That votes really, really well for the resumption of normalcy in our day-to-day -day lives as we look towards the second half of this year. Um, now, the other component of this is also valid, that, that the uh, participation rate, the labor force participation rate is still about two percentage points below its pre-pandemic levels. And I think that um, you know, there are still some individuals that are choosing to stay in the ranks of unemployed because of the additional unemployment benefits that they're receiving and uh, because of their speci specific unique circumstances. But I do believe that, again, over the next call it three to four quarters, the next year or so, we will see continuing normalization in that labor force participation rate. And I don't think that it is a harbinger of, um, you know, very bad things to come for the labor market. Overall, all of the companies that I speak with on a day-to-day -day basis, their biggest limiting factor right now is people, if you can believe that. It's the talent. They're not concerned about uh, you know, the, the likelihood that their demand will hold up. They're concerned about being able to meet that demand when it comes back because they don't necessarily have the right people in place as a result of some of the cuts that they made uh, during the pandemic itself. So I think that we're going to see that um, labor market participation rate normalize, uh, perhaps not immediately, but over time, we will get back to what is essentially normal, which I believe is somewhere in the low 60s as a percentage of the total available working age population. Right, that was a mouthful. Let's uh, move on to the next topic, and that's going to be focused on inflation. So uh, Greg Sinclair asked, how does the volume of current economic stimulus out of D.C., unrelated to COVID relief affect the deflation of the dollar and inflation potential for fourth quarter 2021 and beyond. Uh, very astute question, Greg. I think it's important to note that, uh, yes, um, it, it is likely going to have inflationary pressure. Uh, certainly, the amount of money that we've been uh, seeing brought to bear as part of the stimulus packages has been good for the economy in the near term. I think that the increase in the money supply, the velocity of money uh, certainly increasing, is going to be driving some of that inflationary pressure uh, down the road. But I think that you have to keep in mind that it's not going to be an immediate thing. Much of that money went into savings. Savings. Uh, we have several charts that show how much of a, whether it's disposable personal income or personal saving rates have jumped up and have remained elevated. So that money has not been essentially filtered through to the rest of the economic system yet, at least not, not the majority of it anyway. And so as a result, we're going to have a delayed impact to the inflationary pressures. We do expect inflation to gradually increase over the next four quarters, but we don't think it's going to be significantly higher a year from now than it is already. Even just in the last six months, if you're looking at basic inputs, you know, materials, uh, copper, for example, or steel, they're already up significantly. And it's really 
kind of across the board, if you look at any type of uh, input, so oil and gas, lumber, agricultural products, we are already seeing some of that inflationary pressure start to build. But um, going back to the issue of interest rates, the Fed has clearly indicated that they are okay with inflation running above their uh, historically stable 2% target for several years to offset the, the period of time prior to the pandemic where inflation was consistently running below that 2%. The exact nature of that number has not been specified by the Fed. Are they okay with inflation at 3% or 4%? Nobody really knows. Are they talking about core inflation, which is what they typically refer to, or is it talking about the things that we look at ITR, things like the consumer price index and the producer price index, which is really, I think, a better barometer of measuring how we're feeling these changes. But all of that related to the inflation is, um, you know, to say that, yes, there clearly is a movement in the direction of higher prices. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, and I don't think it's going to be significantly um, damaging to the economy, because I think we obviously have a Fed that watches that very, very carefully. Uh, but I do think that you should prepare yourself for um, higher inflation. Um, I, there was a question asked by Tony Recker uh, that because copper prices were expected to rise, do we feel that precious metals will tend to trend the same? Generally speaking, and I'm not talking about any specific period of time, but generally speaking, inflationary pressure accompanies business cycle rise in the U.S. economy. And so we're expecting that for the basic metals. We're certainly looking to see some of that inflationary pressure feed through to some of the precious metals as well, gold, platinum, silver to a lesser extent, because that's more of a industrialized uh, a precious metal rather than a um, kind of a store of value precious metal. So I think that, yes, you will see that inflationary pressure but that is going to happen over a protracted period of time. It's going to be something that the Fed watches very closely. And when it does start to get out of hand, which we think is beyond the 12 month time frame, then we're going to start to see those interest rates likely trend upward because the Fed consistently uses interest rate policy as a lid on inflationary pressure. So that's, uh, that's the key thing to be watching out for. Uh, one other question on the subject that I thought was really interesting and will benefit all of you from hearing the answer to, uh, Jake DeSabatino asked, do we expect substantial inflation given quantitative easing and debasement of the value of the USD? So uh, in particular, I want to focus on this idea that the dollar is likely going to see depreciation relative to a basket of foreign currencies or just on its regular one-to-one -one exchange versus the pound, for example, or the euro or the Japanese yen. Uh, but it's going to be, again, a long-term thing, and it's not going to happen rapidly overnight. We're not going to see the, the dollar cede its position as the preferred global trade currency. It's going to remain the dominant currency uh, for world trade for a long time to come. Um, these notions that the Chinese renminbi or the euro are likely to overtake the dollar are completely detached from reality. I think that there are multiple reasons beyond uh, be behind that, but I'm not going to go into all of that right now. But yes, I think with the influx of stimulus in general and some of these um, pressures that we're seeing in the inflationary area, yes, we do expect a gradual depreciation in the value of the U.S. dollar versus some of the foreign currencies over the next, I would call it a multi-year period. It's not going to be sharp or overnight in our expectation, but rather gradual over time. Right. Okay. So that's enough on that subject. Let's move to the last area. And that is some great questions about 
housing market dynamics. Uh, so I'll kind of go through these in order. I think these are the most pertinent ones from you, from your perspective as real estate investors. So I want to make sure that I um, do diligence to answer all of these questions. Uh, Brian Ubel asked, do you have a sense of an equilibrium in terms of annual housing starts? So I actually did a little bit of extra research on this, Brian, and I was able to confirm that for the 20 year period, Prior to the onset of the Great Recession back in 2008-2009, the average volume of single-family construction in the United States was about 1.1, 1.2 million. When you add in the roughly 300K in terms of multifamily, what you can get is this sense that historically, at least over the last several decades it, before the housing market fundamentals kind of gotten broken during that Great Recession period, you're talking about roughly speaking about 1.5 million units combined, single and multifamily being built um, over a period of time. Right now, we're still quite a bit below that, particularly short in that single family housing area because we haven't seen the um, missing activity on multifamily, especially after that 08-09 Great Recession, many of the builders turned away from single family houses, especially entry level single family houses below 250 or 300K and to the multifamily and the condo markets. And now we've gotten a situation that that market has become oversaturated and overbuilt at the expense of not enough entry level, particularly single family housing being constructed. So if you talk about where we're at today, relative to those historic trends, there's still several hundred thousand units behind uh, particularly on the single family size uh, side. And so my recommendation in general terms is if you're looking at investment opportunities, it is that entry level market that is going to see the highest volume of demand as you have, you know, people coming back in terms of, uh, you know, job market conditions, being in a financial position to buy a home, and certainly the trend of the millennials and the younger Gen Zs now starting to look at housing in a very serious manner, particularly those older millennials that are moving out of their parents' homes, they're starting families, they're getting married, so they do want a house with a yard and, and uh, for their kid and their dog to play in. So that, I think, is a really good opportunity. And if you can find a good single family house, you know, entry level typically, um, then I would certainly say be expecting a bidding war. That's not going to be anything new across the country. You're likely to see increased competition for those types of properties. But I think that also they, they are um, the, the part of the marketplace that's going to see the most robust demand for the foreseeable future. So I hope that helps. Carrie Tickley asked, what, which is forecasted for higher sales, new home construction or existing home sales? Carrie, the um, very easy question, answer to this question is existing homes. Uh, we're talking about a roughly a five to one ratio of existing homes being sold relative to new construction starts. So that's where the, the biggest volume is in the market is existing properties rather than new construction starts. Okay. Scott Winter asked, how do you anticipate the housing market will fare as we roll off the current government support? Um, I think that this is a really interesting question. Uh, I believe I touched on some of the answers to this question related to the job market conversation earlier, but I really don't see this huge sucking sound coming into the housing market when those eviction moratoriums end. The job market is strong. It's come back very quickly. I think that most of the lenders, particularly the bigger banks, have been very flexible and work 
with people that have potentially are, you know, six or nine months behind on their payments now because they were out of work in terms of, um, you know, adjusting the terms of the loan to add those payments on the back end. I don't think you're going to see an immediate rush to evict people from their homes. And if even if it does happen, and I'm sure some evictions are going to, to occur, it's a normal part of the market, then I have no doubt that those properties are going to be very fast to go on the marketplace with a lot of bidding action to, to get access to those houses. So uh, I don't think that it's going to have a detrimental impact to the outlook for the housing market in general, whether it's single or multifamily. George Galat asked, what type of correlations are you seeing between the underlying economy and the housing markets? What about the correlations between the underlying economy and the stock market? And how do you see those changing over time? Great question, George. Uh, essentially, the first part of your question is easy to answer. The housing market leads the U.S. economy by about a year particularly single family housing has a great amount of predictive ability in terms of being able to say, is the business cycle turning up or turning down for the economy overall? And it typically predicts, predicts that by about a year. We don't see that, that dynamic changing um, at any time soon. We think it's going to continue to, to be predictive in terms of economic activity. Now, as far as the stock market, there's actually not that great of a correlation between what happens in stock prices in terms of uh, earnings ratios or uh, you know valuations in general and what happens in the economy. It's roughly a 50-50 correlation. Um, I think there are a lot of other drivers that really have a significant effect on stock market performance, uh, algorithm trend uh, uh, trading, certainly this new um, trend of uh, couch investors uh, buying the next hot thing. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that goes on. Uh, I will say that in our view, the stock market is generally speaking overvalued right now. It is encouraging to see that uh, profitability at the corporate level is improving. That's helping to close the gap between corporate profits and stock market valuations. But still, I would not be surprised if there is um, some near-term pullback activity in the market based on the delta, the difference that exists between where valuations are today and where um, corporate profits say that those same valuations should be. But I would say neither one is a good predictor to the economy um, uh, or, or the, the, the vice versa to the stock market. So I wouldn't try to put, paint too many correlations between those two. Uh, and I don't think that that's likely to change over time either. Um, the, the last question that I wanted to an answer here is, comes from uh, Jackie J. Cowsell, and I think it's a really important question, and I want to leave you with this food for thought. So her question was, can you explain again why you don't recommend investing in multifamily right now? With such a housing shortage, it seems like squeezing more units into smaller spaces would be wise. So I think it's a really astute observation on Jackie's uh, part. And I certainly didn't mean uh, to come across as saying you shouldn't be investing in multifamily. In fact, when you think about the right time to invest in any given market, typically speaking, buy low, sell high mentality absolutely applies. So you could easily make the argument that because multifamily starts are right now in recession and headed further down based on the interplay between their short-term and long-term rates of change, now is actually a sensible time to be looking at multifamily properties because you're not going to be involved in nearly as many bidding wars. You're going to benefit from a little bit of higher vacancy rates in that market, some uh, depressed rental prices right now. Uh, that is, I think, something that you should look at. Now, I will say 
with caution, obviously. Think about the dynamics of the region, think about the dynamics of that particular location specifically, and think about, you know, will people will want to live in high density housing in the immediate future? I think that in general, I believe that some of the flight to the suburbs will reverse and we will be going back to city centers. And, um, you know, as we bring the pandemic under control and resume some normalcy in our day-to-day lives. So I think it actually paints a very interesting time to be looking seriously at investing in multifamily. But again, you've got to do your research. Um, I just did a project for a company actually, where we look at um, some specific, um, metrics surrounding multifamily. They were looking at, I think, six different markets. We were looking at, I believe it was Seattle, San Francisco, Chicago, Dallas, Orlando, and New York City. Um, And uh, uh, it was actually quite interesting. We looked at all of the employment numbers in the area. We looked at vacancy rates. We looked at average wage growth. We looked at all of the dynamics and the, and the metrics that I mentioned earlier in the, um, in the recording here that I think you should be contemplating as part of your investment strategy. What I'm really hoping is that we'll get a chance to talk again soon and I'll be able to do uh, a little bit more of a regional focus for you guys in future iterations of my presentation if it does come about and we can take a look at some of those metrics and I can go a little bit more in depth in terms of what are the specific things that you should be paying attention to as you contemplate investments in different regional markets, whether it's single family or multifamily. So with that, I just wanted to say thank you again for coming to my presentation. Thanks for sending in such terrific questions. I really do appreciate your engagement. Uh, We are here to support you if you do have specific data needs. Otherwise, again, please uh, leverage that fantastic Bigger Pockets community. Um, You've got great resources at hand. And, um, you know, with information, being a data-driven decision maker is what it's all about. So I encourage you to pursue all of that additional great information, and I wish you the best of success with your future investment decisions. Thanks so much for your time, and take care.